Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I hope that you're all doing well. We have a great collection of stories for you this week. Guaranteed to give you the chills. Let's get into it. As we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I stayed at a cabin in the Appalachian Mountains. Things live deep in the backwoods. Written by Sunhead Prime. Trail End is a town that lives up to its name. It's a sleepy hamlet nestled between the banks of the Tennessee River and the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. During the warmer months, it caters to all types of outdoorsy folks, looking to leave civilization behind for a long weekend. A year ago, I was one of those weekend warriors. I couldn't wait to get lost in the woods for a few days and feel the restorative healing of Mother Nature work its charms on my battered psyche. Back then, my life was in shambles. I had graduated college with massive student loan debt and a few prospects in my chosen field. I applied to every job that fit my degree but couldn't even land an interview. Needing money, I took a day job to help pay the bills until I could find something more permanent. Six months later, I was still at my day job, and most of my prospects had dried up. Worse, the stress from my day job was eating my soul. I loved my coworkers, but management, as usual, was the worst. Every encounter, no matter how benign, left you feeling emotionally drained. The daily onslaught of being micromanaged into the ground was enough to make you want to jump out of the building. I'll give our company credit for one thing. They made the office building windows hard to break and thus they saved countless lives. On top of that, my significant other Charlie and I were at an inflection point. We both were pondering the future and only one of us was curious if it included the other person. In our best moments, our bickering was playful and fun. But lately, that had all started to curdle into bitterness and anger. Suddenly, my home went from being a refuge to a black hole of suck. At the time, it felt like my life was darkening. I wasn't sure if I had a light to see my way out. Our trip to Trailend was very much needed for a multitude of reasons. I was hoping to not only unwind and relax in the woods, but also to reconnect. If the trip went well, my relationship had a fighting chance. I didn't want to think about what lay ahead if things went sideways. We drove up together in my old beater. Now, I love my car, whom I lovingly referred to as Deep Blue for reasons lost to me, but my better half was not a fan. In fact, they were confident that Deep Blue couldn't handle the drive. I wouldn't hear it. Was Deep Blue ugly? Well, yes, yes she was. 
Did she have over 200,000 miles on it? Of course she did. Was she loud and had a constant check engine light glowing? All classic cars do. But I believed in her. Despite my initial confidence, I was worried Deep Blue might not have the oomph needed to push ahead as the roads inclined. Thank God for small miracles though. The old girl pulled through. Our cabin was in the middle of nowhere and looked like it was built during Abraham Lincoln's lifetime, but it was better than a tent. The interiors of the place were a touch better, but not by much. The perk of the place was a big river rock fireplace and a surprisingly comfortable king-sized bed. The condition of the cabin was a secondary concern for the trip. The real beauty was the view. From the cabin's front porch, you had a view of a golden valley filled with tall sweet grass that swayed in the breeze. There was a wooden walkway that cut through the grass and led down to the banks of the river. It was a sight to behold. On the opposite side of the valley was a dense piney woods, so thick with trees that got dark hours before the rest of the valley did. When the wind blew, you could hear it push through the millions of pine needles and it sounded like the ocean. If you closed your eyes, you could trick your brain into thinking that you were near the beach. It was the self that I needed to help heal me. As we brought in everything from deep blue and set up the cabin, we thought that we should head down into town and grab some supplies. We needed the essentials. Chocolate, marshmallows, and graham crackers but also like real food, water, and beer. I was going to grab a couple of cords of wood for both the fire pit outside and that inviting fireplace inside. I could already feel the tension melting away. Charlie and I both could. We stopped at Eddie's Shack, the local general store, and picked up everything that we would need for the long weekend. It was fun, actually. We joked around like we had at the start of the relationship. Nobody put on airs. We were goofy and lovey and remembered that we still liked one another. If this was a portent of the weekend ahead, I was ecstatic. And then we met Eddie. Eddie was straight from small town central casting. He was older though, how old, who could tell? His salt and pepper hair was tucked underneath a weathered Bass Pro Shop trucker's hat. He wore a red and black plaid shirt that looked well-worn with black suspenders pinning it down to his shoulders. Honest to God, when we saw him, he was whittling a block of wood into the shape of an old-timey truck. The city folk, Eddie asked without looking up. How can you tell? I asked. He just laughed. I stole a glance with my partner and rolled my eyes. Where are you staying? By the cabin up near Chimney Valley, I said. A nice spot. You up to fish, hunt, or camp? Relax, I said. A good place to do that. Well, aren't you two a good-looking pair? Eddie said, finally looking up. We both blushed a bit. Thank you, Charlie said with a smirk. I think so, too. You ever been up this way before? Eddie asked, finally putting down his whittling and ringing up our supplies. Nope, I said. First time. Beautiful country, he said. It really is amazing. 
Charlie said. We're above the Whippoorwill Trail. I can't wait to walk through that field. So many pretty wildflowers. Yeah, I saw some pictures on Instagram of the fireflies in the field at night. I added. I think we should walk down there later and see it firsthand. Eddie chuckled to himself and shook his head. Not as good as advertised? Oh no, it's pretty enough, he said. But if I were you, I wouldn't go wandering in the valley at night. Not at all. What, wild animals? Charlie offered. Uh, things like that, but not that, came the reply. What does that mean? I asked. You have any idea how old those woods are? That mountain range. It's older than Jesus himself. Eddie said, adding another whistle. Older than the good Lord and deeper and darker than the pits below itself. Lots of things out there that we don't know about. I looked at Charlie and my eyes screamed. Oh, we should leave. But Charlie wasn't quite ready. I saw that inquisitive look on their face and knew that we weren't going anywhere. Charlie had been hooked by Eddie's ramblings. But you're only thinking on one thing out there, right? Charlie asked. Eddie nodded as he bagged the marshmallows. Yep, I'm thinking of one specific creature that I would avoid. Are there others that you would invite in for tea? I asked trying to bring a little levity to a story that was taking a bleak turn. Eddie laughed. Nah, not really. Besides, I'm not a tea drinker myself. More of a bourbon man. What's the creature? Charlie asked. Well, they come as fireflies. Eddie said as he put the chocolate bars in the bag. But they don't stay that way. That's how they get around. How they blend in. Once they change, though... Who boy. I wanted to say that I don't remember seeing any monsters on the insta-feed, but thought the remark would arrive at DOA. Plus, I wasn't sure that I wanted to learn more about these creatures or stories about these creatures. I know how my brain works. Later tonight when Charlie inevitably falls asleep before me, I'll be stressing out about firefly monsters. What is it? Charlie asked again. Eddie looked up. His lower lip was bumped out from dip. His teeth bore the telltale staining of a habitual user. He looked at Charlie dead in the eyes and said, The Maymen. What the heck are the Maymen? Well, I don't know exactly, but I do know to stay away from them. What do you know? Are they people? I asked, dreading the answer. Well, in a way, yes, and in a way, no, he said. I hear they look like a person, but taller, and their eyes glow green, and that's how they blend in with the fireflies. But that ain't the worst part. We waited with bated breath, but Eddie just handed over our bags and said, That'll be twenty-two thirty-five. I reached for my wallet, but Charlie knocked my arm down. Eddie, what's the worst part? Oh, he said, they got long blades for arms, and once they spot you, he trailed off. And do they follow? No, yes, Eddie said, spitting into a little styrofoam cup. Need to get near a fire to keep them at bay, or so I'm told.
Again, I ain't never seen one for myself. Well, I wouldn't want to either, I said, handing over some cash to Eddie. If you got a fireplace in your cabin, he said, handing me my change, I'd keep a fire burning just in case. They can't use doors, but they can come down chimneys. Uh, maybe I'll take another quart of wood then, I said, handing over a five. Hey, you have a good one now, okay? Enjoy Mother Nature. She's a beautiful woman. We hustled out of the store and let Eddie return to his whittling. We stayed quiet for the first ten minutes in deep blue, but I knew that it wouldn't last. Charlie was busting at the seams. The heck was that back there? Charlie finally blurted out. Oh man, I have no clue. The Maymen. They come as fireflies, I said, doing my best to mimic Eddie's voice. The review of my attempt was sudden. Charlie blanched and gave me a thumbs down. Yeah, that was rough. Hey, it's a work in progress, I countered. You think there is anything? No, I said before Charlie finished speaking. There are some backwoods stories designed by bored people to scare off Torres. Did it work? Charlie said, needling me. No, I lied. I don't think Eddie is a reliable narrator. Charlie laughed. Eh, probably not. Hey, did you grab some booze back there? Yep. Why? It was Charlie's turn to mimic Eddie's voice. Well, I ain't much of a tea drinker myself. I'm a bourbon man. I glanced over at Charlie and nodded. Yeah, the impression was spot on. Of course it was. It always is. Charlie laughed and I did too. It was nice. When we got back to the cabin with some daylight still left, I wanted to get an early jump on dinner, but Charlie wanted to hit the trail before it got too dark. You don't want to walk in the river. I do, but, you know, dinner. It'll be here when we get back. Should I start a fire? Prep a fire, Charlie countered. And let's hope the Maymen leave your perfectly balanced wood alone. Oh, so, so funny. I said and went about setting up the fire in the fireplace. It was a smart idea to get this prepped. The walk through the valley to the river was longer than Charlie had thought, and we would both be starving by the time that we got back. Every little time saver helped avoid hangar taking hold. There was a wooden staircase from the cabin's property that led down about 50 stairs to Chimney Valley. The landing at the bottom was split into three different trails. The most popular and longest was the Whippoorwill Trail. It was a raised boardwalk that zigzagged through the tall grass and flowers of the valley and deposited you to the banks of the Tennessee River. The walk was stunning. As you descend the stairs, you can smell the valley below you. The rush of the river is audible from so far out, and that noise mixes so well with the calls of birds and buzzing of bees. The valley was blooming and countless wildflowers of different colors were all around us. You were surrounded by life, and it was mesmerizing. We got down to the river and dipped our toes in. The water was freezing, so we decided to try to tackle the swim tomorrow. We sat at the water's edge and just talked and connected with one another. 
It was what I needed. It was what I craved. It was also time-consuming, though. Before we realized it, the sun had started to set. We really didn't want to hike up those stairs in the dark, so we started back towards the cabin. Despite our best efforts, I assumed that the night would catch up with us. When the sun sets behind the woods, it gets dark almost instantly. I couldn't help but think of Eddie telling us that these woods were deeper and darker than the pits below itself. By the time that we were halfway home, it was clear we would be doing most of this hike in the dark. It was okay though, because the valley was just as beautiful in the evening. A wind picked up and the tall grass around us rolled like ocean waves in the breeze. There were more stars overhead than I had ever seen before. You could still hear the rush of the river, constant and calming. Charlie and I held hands and slowly walked along the boardwalk. This feels like a dream, Charlie said. I can't tell you how much I needed this. We needed this, Charlie corrected. Yeah, we needed this, I echoed. We slowed our pace and just enjoyed being with each other. Charlie rested his head on my shoulder and we strolled along the boardwalk. I couldn't see the stairs, but I knew that we were getting close. The thought of climbing old, rickety wooden stairs in the pitch black was not appealing. Look, Charlie yelled, pointing out into the grass. My god, there are so many of them. I turned and saw the glowing lights of fireflies all around us. Green and yellow lights winked in the darkness. There had to have been thousands. It instantly transported me to my childhood. I spent summers on my grandparents' farm out in the country and at night, I would stare out at the pastures as the fireflies arrived. I put my arm around Charlie and I gave a squeeze. This is incredible, I said softly. I'm so glad that we came down here tonight. Yeah, me too. I gotta get a picture, Charlie said, pulling out a phone. Get close and I'll get a selfie with the fireflies in the background. Oh, for the gram, I said sarcastically. Charlie ignored me and held up the phone and snapped a photo. Unfortunately, the auto flash was on and the burst of light nearly blinded us. Duh, I said, rubbing my eyes. Hey, my bad, Charlie said, trying to sound sincere but also laughing. That was dumb of me. Yeah, auto flash off, I said. Sorry, Charlie said, switching it off. I'll put it on night mode so it'll get everything, but you have to stand still for a few. I'll manage. We tried again and this time we weren't blinded by the light. Charlie pulled up the photo and gave a little squeal of approval. Look at how many fireflies there are. I took the phone and I looked at the photo. We were surrounded by fireflies all around us. It really was an incredible photo. I always admired just how good Charlie was at taking photos. Even though it was just a selfie, Charlie managed to get so much depth to the shot. I was about to return the phone when something in the photo had caught my eye. I zoomed in on the space between Charlie and me and felt my body freeze. There were two fireflies between us in the shot, or I thought there were fireflies. 
On closer inspection, they were eyes. Somebody was standing on the boardwalk behind us. I didn't want to say it out loud, but I needed to tell Charlie. I pulled up the memo pad and started typing. Charlie was confused. Hey, I was going to post this on Insta, Charlie said. I held up the screen. All I wrote was, somebody's behind us. In the faint glow of the phone, I saw Charlie's face go from bliss to horrified. Charlie took the phone from me and typed, are you sure? I pulled up the photo and handed the phone over. Charlie looked at the photo and his jaw dropped. The phone started shaking. I grabbed at Charlie's hands and held them. I tried my best to calm us both down. I leaned in close and whispered, On three, we run. Okay, Charlie said, their voice shaking. Is that a May man? I don't want to stick around to find out. You ready? Charlie nodded and pocketed the phone. Don't look back, just run for the stairs, okay? One, two, three. We both took off like a rocket. At first, all I heard was our footsteps slapping against the boardwalk, and I wondered if my mind was playing tricks on me. But then I heard the high-pitched scream bellow from behind us. I felt it climb up my spine and lodge in my brain. I've never run so fast in my life. What the heck is that? Charlie screamed. Just run. Charlie got to the stairs first and started taking them two at a time. I was worried that the weather-beaten stairs might break from us running up them, but it was a secondary concern at this point. From behind us, the creature was gaining speed. Its footsteps were violent when they hit the boardwalk. Worse, something was clearly digging into the wood with each step that the monster took. Something sharp like a knife. I suddenly remembered Eddie mentioning blade arms. Keep going. I could feel the entire staircase shaking as we dashed up it. If these steps gave out, we'd be done. The only other way out of the valley was the river, and that way was blocked now. I was about two-thirds of the way up when Charlie had made it to the top. Hurry up, Charlie pleaded. Go inside the cabin, I yelled. I'm right behind you. Charlie waited a second and then took off. I was nearing the top of the stairs when I felt the stairs shake below me. I looked back and saw those green eyes staring up at me. The May men screamed again, and I put my hands over my ears to muffle the noise. It was like it was piercing my brain. The moon came up from behind a cloud and in a fleeting second, I saw the light reflect off the arms of the creature. Eddie hadn't been mistaken. The creature had blades for arms. I watched as they dug into the wooden stairs and helped the Mayman launch up four stairs at once. It was time to move. I hurried up the last few steps and reached the top in a flash. Charlie was standing in the cabin's doorway pleading for me to hurry. I could hear the Mayman launching up more stairs and knew that we had limited time. I ran over to Charlie who was frantic at this point. I slammed the door behind us and locked it. I glanced around the room and saw the big bed. That would block anyone from opening the door. The bed, I said, and Charlie knew exactly what I had planned. We dragged the big thing in front of the door and pressed against it. 
We were bracing for the Maimen to crash into the cabin. What the heck is happening? Charlie asked. I don't know, but we're safe inside. Are we? I have to believe that, I admitted. When the Maimen reached the top of the stairs, it bellowed again. We both covered our ears. The scream echoed across the valley. I had a hard time believing that everyone in Trail End didn't hear it. We waited for the creature to start battering the door, but nothing happened. I glanced up from behind the bed and looked through the windows to see if I could spot the creature, but I didn't see anything. I knew that it was out there, but where was it? Suddenly I heard something, a thump on the roof. It had launched itself up there, but why? Why not take the... And then I remembered what Eddie had said about chimneys. It's going to come down the chimney, I said out loud to myself. Fire, Charlie said. I need a lighter, give me a lighter. Charlie fished his pockets for a few seconds and pulled out an old Zippo. I snagged it and made my way to the fireplace. Above me, I heard the main man struggle to find its footing on the slanted roof, but it was clear where they were heading. When I got to the fireplace, I remembered that I had set up a fire already. I started laughing at my dumb luck. My hands trembled as I tried to flick the wheel on the Zippo trying to get a flame going. Come on, come on. The Mayman reached the top of the chimney and let out another yell. I was so scared that I dropped the Zippo. Come on, I said, scooping it back up and frantically spinning the flint. It would spark but no flame caught. Come on, light already, you piece of crap. I heard the blade arms dig into the river rock at the top of the chimney. The main men would be inside the cabin in a matter of seconds, and we had blocked off the only way in and out. My heart raced. I could feel my blood rushing in my veins. My fingers desperately tried to coax the flame out of the Zippo. I could hear the main man push its large body into the chimney. I would be face to face with it in an instant. Come on, Charlie yelled. I'm trying. I could hear the blades dig into the rock and the massive body inch forward. The Mayman screamed again and I could feel the sound waves blast my hair back. A trickle of blood came out of my left ear but I ignored it. I pressed down hard on the wheel and spun it so hard that it left the gear-like indention in my thumb. But it worked. The spark finally caught. I had a flame. Just as I saw the tip of the blade reach the fireplace opening, I dropped the Zippo into the instant start hay, kindling and watching the fire ignite. The Mayman screamed again, but this wasn't the same as before. It was in pain. The blade retreated and I heard the body start to shuffle up the chimney to escape the glowing fire. I heard it reach the top of the chimney again and scream. It dug its blade arms into the roof and launched itself into the darkness of the woods. As quickly as it had arrived, it was gone. I laid back on the ground and started laughing. I didn't know what else to do. Charlie crawled over to me and we laid in each other's arms. We didn't say a word for the longest time. We just embraced, and I knew then that I loved Charlie. I think this is what they mean by the restorative healing of Mother Nature, I asked. Charlie started cracking up. I joined in. We laid there for a few minutes more, laughing and coming down from the adrenaline spike. This was not the relaxing trip that I had hoped for. 
Eventually, as expected, Charlie fell asleep first. I stayed up the rest of the night, feeding the fire and ensuring the light never went out. Sometime around dawn, I dozed off for a spell, but the sunlight streaming through the windows woke me up. Charlie woke up and stretched out. We okay? Right as rain, I said with an exhausted sigh. We're leaving, right? Heck yes, I said. We pushed the bed back in place and packed our bags up. I lit one of the last logs like a torch and I opened the door. I didn't think the main man was there, but I didn't want to be caught off guard either. I felt dumb holding it, but I didn't care. I can drive first, Charlie offered, and I instantly agreed. I needed to get some real sleep. I could feel the weariness in my bones that I'd be out in five seconds into the drive. Charlie loaded up the last of the bags and slammed Deep Blue's hatchback door closed. Think this girl will make it home? I never doubt Deep Blue. You're the only one, Charlie said with a wink as we entered the car. I walked over to the outdoor fire pit to put down my torch when I heard something shuffling at the edge of the woods. I gripped the log tight in my hands. I assumed that these creatures only moved around at night, but I had no idea if that was true. Start the car, I yelled over my shoulder. I could hear Charlie turning the key in the engine struggling to catch. Another turn and the engine sputtered, but it did not start. A third time with the same result. Charlie leaned out the window. Could anything else go wrong? And that's when we heard the main man scream. It burst out from the woods in front of me. It arsed in the sky heading right towards me. Time slowed down as the monster descended on me. I heard Charlie yell. I heard the car struggle to start again. I saw the sun reflect off the blade arms that were a mere feet away from my body. And I saw my reflection in those firefly eyes. I also remembered that I was holding a torch. As soon as the May man was a foot from me, I slammed the torch into its face. The creature screamed and went up like it was soaked in gasoline. It crashed into me, but I kicked it off and scrambled to my feet. I dashed to the car and slid inside. Go, go, go. Charlie cranked the key. Nothing. Cranked again. Nothing. Cranked a third time. Nothing. I hate you, Deep Blue. I looked in the rear view and saw the May Man, fully engulfed in flames, steady themselves and try to stand back up. I patted Deep Blue on the dash and whispered, Come on, girl, for me. Charlie cranked the key again and the engine caught. It roared to life. In a second, Charlie shifted into drive and floored the puddle, and we fishtailed on the dirt road, but the tires caught and we flew down the mountain. You're getting a new car, Charlie said. Deep Blue's had a good run, but come on. Yeah, I know, I answered. I know. We didn't stop driving for three hours. We both flipped off the welcome to trail inside as we drove past. It was safe to say that we would never be coming back. Against the odds, things improved after the trap. I think when you face death, it helps you put things into perspective. Charlie and I had a long talk and decided that we wanted to stay together, and we're still going strong. Work got better too once I learned to leave the BS at the office. I'm still struggling to find my dream job, but this is America. 
were all struggling. Last night after Charlie fell asleep during the movie that we were watching on Netflix, I went out to our balcony and I watched the city below. The noise of the city isn't as comforting as the wind through the pine needles, but it has its charms. I took a sip of my beer and let the noise enrapture me. And then I heard it. A scream. The Maymen scream. I snapped back up and scanned the area, but I didn't see anything. No fireflies, no blade arms, nothing. Maybe I was hearing things I must have been. I saw it burn. I probably had PTSD from the encounter. Regardless, I went back inside and turned on our propane fireplace. If it came back, I would finish the job. I burned you once, I thought. I'll do it again. I think that most of us can relate with not having enough hours in the day and always feeling like we don't have time to prepare a nice meal. On top of that, grocery shopping can be a pain and before you know it. You've spent entirely too much time wandering aisles and dodging other shoppers. Now it's late and you're stressed out because you still don't have anything made. HelloFresh solves all of these and helps you save time and money. HelloFresh cuts out stressful meal planning and grocery store trips so that you can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in about 30 minutes or less. With HelloFresh, you get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door and they have options for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and even that late-night snack. Shh, don't worry, I won't tell. Recently, my go-to recipe is the creamy shrimp tagliatelle. It sounds fancy, I know, but HelloFresh breaks down the recipe steps really easily so even I can make it, and it ends up tasting amazing. And to get started, go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16 and use code MrCreep16 to enjoy a whopping 16 free meals plus free shipping. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16. Code Mr. Creep 16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Please avoid this stretch of road in southern Michigan. Written by Sunhead Prime. I don't like to think about the event. In the intervening 10 years since it went down, I have gone out of my way to memory hole any details about what happened. But as much as I try to forget, snippets of the encounter bubble up all the time. I've never told anyone about this, outside of the few people involved. No one else in the world knows this happened. But it did happen. Recently, more and more of these memories have started to stalk me again. Some nights I can shut off my brain because all I can do is lay in bed and replay the trauma over and over. The last few months have been rough. I couldn't sleep and it was beginning to affect my day-to-day -day life. My therapist, who had sensed a change in me, suggested that I confront my trauma head-on and write about it. I thought that it was pretty dumb, but I was desperate. They said... When you have nobody to talk to, talk to your journal. I've written all this down, hoping that it'll help purge my brain of this whole mess. Deep down I know it won't, but I have to try because, well, 
I just have to try. It can't get better if I don't deal with it. All of it. It was around Halloween during my senior year of high school. I wasn't trick-or-treating anymore, but my friends and I were still looking for something to do. Sitting at home during the best holiday of the year seemed like a waste. We were young and restless, but we also knew this would be the last year that we saw each other every day. Things were changing and we were looking to make a few lasting memories while we still could. Someone upstairs must have been listening because we got word that Janet Franklin's aunt had died. While it was a shame that her aunt had died, it became a blessing for the senior class. A dead, out-of-town aunt meant that Janet's parents would be gone for a few days for the funeral. Janet couldn't go because she was a hair away from failing out and couldn't afford to miss any more school. As soon as the word got out, everybody knew where we would be for Halloween. I was psyched for the bonfire, the beer, and Brianna Johnson. I had had a crush on her for years and I finally decided to shoot my shot. Were the odds stacked against me? According to my friends then, the rational parts of my brain, yes, but I didn't care. I was going to go for broke. The worst thing that could happen would be that she says no. I would deal with the fallout for half a year and then go off to college. The best thing, well, I didn't want to get too far ahead of myself. The evening of the party, I remember there being three of us at the liquor store. It was me, Michael, and Moose, the trio. We were friends from way back and spent every day hanging out after school. I can still see us shooting it in Moose's garage, smoking dirt weed and laughing ourselves silly. There were always three of us. When we heard a party was going down, we figured that we would score some cool points by bringing alcohol. We weren't unpopular exactly, but we weren't in the upper echelon of high school society. Looking back, using terms like cool points probably held back our ascent to the heights of high school. But we did have one thing that many kids didn't. A connection for Hooch. The local place was Royal Liquor, and our dude was Rusty. Rusty looked like his name, a natural-born dirtbag. He knew that we were underage, but he sold booze to us anyway. Granted, he overcharged us and pocketed the extra cash, but whatever. The small price to pay for a steady stream of Boone's Farm and Southern Comfort. We entered the store and gave him a nod before we ducked down the aisle towards the booze coolers. I was about to grab a bottle when we heard the doorbell chime and saw a cop walk into the store. I kept an eye on him using the concave mirrors in the store's corners. He was heading my way so I closed the cooler door and took a detour down the candy aisle until the cop left. As soon as the coast was clear, we grabbed our booze and made our way up to the counter. Rusty shook his greasy hair and laughed like a hyena. You boys were about to crap your pants when that cop strolled in. We can't all have criminal records, Russ. I said with a grin. Some of us have a future ahead of us. You want me to card you? He said in a tone that waffled between joking and serious. Moose elbowed me. He's messing with your dog. I know, I know. Rusty said as he bagged up the bottles. A lot of hooch. 
You guys heading to a party? We were quiet and Rusty rolled his eyes. What, you worried I'm going to show up or what? I'm 30, man. Nothing there for me but potential jail time. Yeah, I said. Whole senior class is going. Nice, he said, handing over the bag. If you need any more, I'll be here until 11. What about some condoms? Moose asked with a grin. This baby thinks that he's going to need them. Man, you better bring enough business here from that party. I'll throw in the jimmies for free. Wrap those rascals, boys. I don't need no prizes. That was gross and I was embarrassed. But Moose and Michael laughed. I nodded because I didn't know what else to do. Man, we better get going, Russ. I said moving towards the door. We're running late. And take Denton Road. Rusty said with a laugh. Moose shrugged. Eh, it might not be a bad idea. Probably save us some time. Michael instantly shook his head no. Yeah, no way, not worth it. They say that anybody that goes down Denton has ghosts follow them home. I'm not driving down a haunted road, man, I said. Don't be a baby, Moose said. Ghosts aren't real, it's only a legend. Is it though? Rusty asked. Yes, Moose said. It's just cornfields. Corn has to be replanted every year, Rusty said, shaking his head. And nobody's planting it along Denton Road. But year after year, those cornfields come back. Yeah, I've heard that too, Michael said. How do you know? Moose asked Rusty. You're not a farmer. I have hobbies outside of this job, man. But if you don't believe me, drive down and see. Have a good one, I said as we walked out. We piled into my truck, Moose in the passenger seat and Michael in the small fold-out side seat behind Moose. It was cramped, but he fit fine. I started the engine and took off. As we drove down Main, we saw the sign for Denton Road fast approaching. Moose looked over at me and shook his head. Dude, it's a straight shot to Janet's house. We don't need to get there that bad, Michael said from the back seat. It's only 20 minutes longer down Willow Street. Fine, Moose said, looking at the window. I hope Brad isn't there. Why, are you afraid he's going to beat you up? I asked. First of all, I'd beat him up, Moose said. Michael and I laughed. Sure, dude. Secondly, Moose continued, I'm looking out for you. I heard he's got a thing for Brianna, too. You gonna give a dude like that an extra half an hour to mac on your lady? I mean, come on, he screwed the drama teacher, right? I don't think he got with Miss Sanderson, I said. Well, she does fawn all over him, Michael added. Sucks if you miss out on getting to talk to her because you were too afraid to drive down a road, Moose said, expertly prodding me. He had a point. Looking back, I wish that I had had the strength and conviction to ignore him, but I wasn't rational at the moment and I have to admit, the idea of Brad hooking up with Brianna did piss me off. I pulled over to the side of the road and considered my options. I looked back at Moose and asked, Why do you want to get there so early? I got a girl that I like too, he said. It's not all about you. Dude, Michael said. Is it worth going down Denton to save 20 minutes? What can happen in 20 minutes? A lot can happen in 20 minutes, Moose argued. Rockets can get to space in 20 minutes. 
That is true, I agreed. You know the legends, Michael pleaded. The Denton family swore revenge in the town and anybody who came on their property. Yeah, then they were wiped out by drunk hillbillies a couple hundred years ago, Moose said. What's your point? Hundred years isn't that long, Michael countered. They may be lying in wait. For what, three dudes in a truck to drive past their burned down house and the hanging tree? Hanging tree, I said. What the heck is that? The tree where they were all hung by the townsfolk, Moose said. I heard they were shot. No, Michael said. They were beaten with farm tools, even the children. And the townspeople put them in the house and they burned it to the ground. Jesus, I said. Why did they do that? Town thought that they were witches, Michael said. They destroyed those people, man. Yeah, history's brutal. Enough, man, Moose said, turning to me. What are you going to do, sit here and talk about local legends or be the hero of the party for bringing booze and trying to get with Brianna? I looked forward. The old weather-beaten sign for Denton Road loomed large in my view. I shifted the truck back into drive and I flipped on my blinker. I was going to take Denton Road. Michael sighed and Moose cheered. I smiled, edged my truck back in the road and turned down the street. I could practically hear the cheers from the party goers as I showed up with a bottle of 99 bananas. Denton was a dirt road and not a well maintained one. There were tons of potholes and my poor truck was bouncing like it was on a trampoline. I slowed my speed down to 20 but we were still bumping up and down. The heck, I said, my voice barely audible over the din. Dirt roads go bad fast, Moose said, especially if nobody maintains them. You probably go a little bit faster, though. Hey, I'm not trying to mess up my shocks or suspension. I'm keeping the black bullet healthy for as long as I can. Don't call your truck that, Moose said. When you get a truck, you can name it whatever you want. Until then, you have no right to criticize. The sun had set, and since this was a backcountry road, there were no lights, save for my headlights. As we inched along, Michael started staring out the back window intently. I would have usually just let it go, but he was staring at something on the left side of the road. You okay? He didn't respond right away. I was about to ask him again when he muttered. I saw something. Yeah, sure, I said. Was it your virginity? Moose said with a chuckle, because we all see that. But Michael didn't laugh. He just kept staring out the window. Moose and I looked at him in the rear view before sharing a glance. We had a conversation in that glance. Michael was acting really weird. I decided to turn on the radio to fill the silence, but the thing wouldn't turn on. What the heck, I mumbled. Without looking up, Michael said, this isn't a surprise. It's the fuse, Moose said. Remember, it was giving you issues last week. Yeah, because you tried to fix it. Hey, man, you wanted me to try to install the system. Well, you said you could. I thought I could. When my cousin and I installed his system in his Civic, it worked with no problem. It's probably your crappy truck. Dude, the bullet is getting us to the party. I said, tapping on the steering wheel. Don't bash her. And that's when all the lights in my cab went out.
the engine sputtered and died. We rolled to a stop in the middle of Denton Road with absolutely no lights. It was pitch black and we were alone. Yeah, so much for the bullet, Moose said, and I couldn't disagree this time. This isn't good, Michael said. What if they come for us? Who? The people that were following us. They gave me pause, but my rational brain went out. I hadn't noticed anything in the mirrors. There wasn't anyone back there. They were in the corn. Alright, don't be like that dude, Moose said. I'd be careful out there, Michael added, not looking away from the window. Moose elbowed me. You want to take a look at the engine? I nodded and Moose and I climbed out of the car. I leaned my head back in and told Michael, Keep an eye out just in case. I popped the hood and Moose and I stared at the engine. I don't know crap about cars, Moose offered. Yeah, my broken radio tells me that much. Dude, he whispered, what's up with Michael? I don't know, he, he seems off. You think that he really saw something? I don't think so, but who knows. He's been acting weird since the store. I mean, what do we do here? He's flipping out, the car won't start, and we're stuck on Denton Road. I said, looking around. I'm not saying some ghouls are going to get us or anything, but I think you would agree that this blows. We should have stayed on Main Street, Moose offered. Yeah, no crap, I said, holding back my urge to deck him. And that's when Michael called out. It's there, in the corn. I looked at Moose and he looked back at me. He shook his head. Maybe he already broke into the booze, he whispered. What are you talking about? I yelled out. What's in the corn? The family. Not gonna lie to you, that chilled me. I wasn't thinking ghosts, I was thinking killers. Some Charlie Manson type stuff. My brain snapped into survival mode, and I thought about what weapons that we had to fight with. A tire iron, a broken bottle. Moose had said before that he knew how to make a Molotov, although I had doubts after the radio debacle. Let's go try the car again, I said to Moose. I slammed the hood louder than usual, hoping to scare off anyone who might be near us. We both climbed back into the car. Michael didn't move, he just kept staring out the window. It was like he was avoiding us. I looked at Moose and then back at Michael. Hey man, you okay? He didn't respond right away. He just kept staring out the back window. His breathing had slowed like he was afraid to make any noise. Michael, I said softly, you see something? They're watching us. They're all around us. I tried to start my truck. The engine whined and wheezed, but it wouldn't turn over. I tried again and again, and I leaned back inside. Just then, out of the corner of my eye, I saw something move along the side of the road. It might have been the wind or an animal, but I wasn't sure. I leaned over and locked my door. Just then, at the other end of the street, I saw a pair of headlights light up. Moose grinned like an idiot. Heck yeah, he said with a noticeable bit of relief to his normal non-ghost-believing voice. This dude can totally give us a jump. Yeah, thank God, I muttered. Those lights aren't coming to save us. 
Michael said, his face still glued to the back window. What the heck is your deal? Moose demanded, but Michael didn't respond. Moose was pissed off now. Turn around and look at me, dude. He grabbed Michael's shoulder, but then my engine started. Moose and I looked forward. I did not hesitate. I pressed down on the gas pedal. The truck fishtailed a bit on the dirt road, but we lurched forward. I allowed myself to smile. That had been really weird, but we were getting out of here. And then the engine died again. We rolled to a stop. I slammed my hand into the steering wheel in frustration. What was going on? How far did you get? Michael asked. At 20 feet, maybe 30, I said. Why? Those lights seem any closer. Moose and I both looked ahead. They didn't look any closer. What the heck? Moose said, his voice trailing off. How did you know that? Just then, at the edge of where my headlights reached, we saw something run across the road into the corn. You saw. I started, but Moose nodded, and I didn't need to finish it. The family, Michael said breathlessly. Man, screw the family, Moose said as he kicked open the passenger door. I'm about to mess these people up. I reached for him, but he was out of the truck before I could grab him. He walked in front of the car, his body casting long shadows down the street. And he started screaming a string of obscenities at whoever was out there. I watched in hopes that he would scare them away, and didn't fear that they would rush him. What is your deal? I asked Michael. I said not to come down this road. I said the family cursed it. I said they would be here. Is this some kind of prank you're pulling? This isn't funny, man. He slowly turned his head to face me as Moose yelled out. What the heck is that? I snapped my eyes forward and saw Moose staring out into the dark cornfield. Deep in the waving grains, we saw the ruins of the old Denton farmhouse. It was just a burned husk at this point. The years of neglect had left it near collapse, but it was still standing, defiant in its own way. Even though the house had no electricity running to it and nobody lived there, a light turned on in one of the rooms. I got out of the car. I still to this day don't know why I did that, and I walked over to Moose. We both stared out at the light. I nudged him and he nudged me back. I just wanted to make sure that this was all really happening. We heard a car door slam that snapped us out of our stupor. We both looked back, expecting to see Michael finally joining us, but he was still in the back seat. The heck was that? From the darkness beyond my headlights, I heard a flat, monotone voice call out. You boys need help. Moose and I shared another conversation in a look. We hadn't heard a car pull up, or anything else. But now, there was a car just outside of our field of vision. Some stranger standing in the black void, suddenly wanting to lend us a hand. It felt off. Maybe it's rusty, Moose offered. This would be the kind of crap that he would pull. I don't know, dude. That ain't rusty, man, I said. You boys need some help, 
The stranger repeated. You have any cables? I asked, my voice wavering. My truck died. That happens here, they said flatly. So, do you have any cables? Yes, the stoic voice said. Come here and get them. Moose said in a whisper, Don't you dare walk to him. You make that weirdo come to us. Just drive ahead, I said, and we'll hook up our cars. Behind us, we could hear footsteps crunching on the gravel. It was more than one person. We both turned to see who was there, but we only found an empty truck. Michael was gone. The heck? I said to no one in particular. Did someone? And that's when Moose elbowed me. I turned around. The lights were gone. The car was gone. The man was gone. Instead, there were at least a dozen or so people holding torches in a semicircle. From what I could see, they looked like turn-of-the-century farmers. Their clothes were ratty and stained with dirt. That was bad. But what made it worse was that Michael was standing in front of the group. Dude, I said, what are you doing, Michael? Moose looked at me, confused as well. You know these people? He whispered. I know Michael, I said, my mind reeling. Who's Michael? Our friend that's standing in front of a bunch of freaking weirdos. I'll never forget the look that Moose gave me. It was fear and confusion and terror. He barely eked out. I've never seen that kid in my life. Have you ever felt like you were outside your own body? A spectator to things that were happening to you? Well, that's what it felt like. This couldn't have been real. It was way too messed up to be real. He's not wrong, Michael said, flashing a mischievous grin. We've never met. That, that's impossible, I stammered out. We've been friends for years. We go to school together for God's sake. What are you talking about, dude? What classes do we have together? Michael asked. And my mind went blank. I suddenly couldn't remember any of the classes that I had with Michael. I couldn't remember hanging out with him. I couldn't remember being friends with him. I didn't have a single memory with Michael in it. It was like he had been erased from my mind. He was a stranger. We were at the liquor store, I said, trailing off as my mind collapsed in on itself. Were we? He asked with a small laugh. Moose looked at me and subtly nodded towards the truck. I gave him a look that let him know that I was thinking the same thing. First chance we run. We weren't as slick as we thought we were being. Thinking of leaving us, Michael said. But you were so eager to join us earlier. Look, man, I said. I'm sorry we came down here. We didn't mean any disrespect. You were warned. The whole town was warned and still you didn't listen. Yeah, we were dumb, I said, not knowing what else to vocalize. This is our land, it always has been. Always will be, Michael said, 
everyone should stay off it. Just then, Michael let out an unearthly scream, and everybody with a torch threw them at us. Moose and I screamed as they came flying at us. We both threw our arms up to block the incoming wall of flames, but as the torches hit the ground around us, they disappeared. We were in total blackness again. Moose and I looked around. Everyone was gone. All the dirty farmers, Michael the stranger with the car, all gone. There wasn't any noise but the corn blowing in the wind and the crickets chirping. Clouds rolled over the moon and made it so dark that you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And that's when I felt hot breath in my right ear. Michael hissed a single word. Run. Just then, my truck's engine roared to life. The headlights nearly blinded us, but we didn't mess around. We scrambled to our feet and dashed into the pickup. I threw it in reverse and slammed on the gas. The truck's back end slid on the gravel but finally caught and we tore off down Denton Road. I wanted to go home but I knew that I couldn't. Not yet. I had to confirm something. I pulled my truck into the liquor store's parking lot and we dashed inside. Rusty was still there, killing time by reading an old issue of We. He perked up when he saw Moose and me. Me quickly stashed the girly mag under the counter. Jesus, for a second I thought you were the boss. Can't get caught looking at boobs on company time. You're back for more already. This must be a rager. Rusty, I said, catching my breath. How many of us were there when we came in earlier? What? Just answer the question. Moose said terrified. I followed. Were there two of us or three of us? Rusty shook his head. I know down in Boone's farm gets you buzzed, but not to the point where you can't count. Just answer, I implored. Two, he said matter-of-factly. Just you and Moose, why? My heart sank. Moose and I stumbled out and climbed back into my truck. We wouldn't be attending Janet's party. I would not be talking to Brianna. This would not be a night to remember, but one that I would try to forget. We went back to Moose's house, drank every ounce of liquor, and passed out. The next day, my brain went into sanity preservation mode, and I forgot what had happened. Moose, too. We never spoke about it again. Crap, I, I wouldn't even know what to say. That was ten years ago. Like I said, the story has been coming back to me lately. The dream started when I read that the Denton plot had been sold. The new owners had torn down the farmhouse and had cut down the cornfields. This news seemed to trigger flashes of remembrance that soon caught fire in my memory. Suddenly, I couldn't shake the memories, no matter how hard I tried. I'm doing my best to deal, but so far, I'm struggling. I often wonder why we weren't killed that night. If legends were to be believed, anybody who tangled with the Denton family ghosts never lived to tell the story. But then it clicked. Death would be too light of a sentence for trespassers. It wasn't enough to appease the family. They wanted me to carry this fear for life. I lost touch with Moose after high school and I tried to find him online but he seems to have disappeared. Wherever he is, I hope that he's happy. But deep down, I know that he's not. I know he's feeling this too.
I think it's just a matter of time before we reconnect, and we need to, badly. Because Michael came to visit me last night. My father always kept the shed locked. Today, I found out why. Written by CIA Herb. Growing up, I remember it all vividly. Anytime my friends or I got too close to the shed, my dad would come out hollering and yelling, telling us to stay away from there and that it was no place for kids. He told me that he had expensive tools and dangerous chemicals stored there. As a child, I didn't question it. It was just one of those things. In my mind, I had been born into a world where the sun rises in the east, breakfast is the first meal of the day, and the shed stays locked. They were all true, self-evident, and simply the way things existed in my young mind. But as I grew older and eventually moved off to college, I began to question the shed more. My father still wouldn't let me look in there. In fact, he kept the sole key on his person at all times. Even when he slept, he would keep the key in his pocket. Then, during my second semester at the nearby state university, I got a call that every son or daughter dreads. I was attending a lecture on anatomy when my phone lit up, ringing silently in the great, crowded hall. Looking down, I saw that it was my brother's number. I went outside, lighting up a cigarette and answering it. Hello? I said. Gil. My brother answered immediately. Oh, Luke, thank God you answered, he said. It's Dad. He's been taken to the hospital. He had some sort of medical emergency. Can you meet us here? Maybe 25 minutes. I said that I would, hanging up. I grabbed my stuff in the lecture hall and made my way to my car. 22 minutes later, I pulled into the hospital. It was too late, however. My father had died of a heart attack on the way. He was declared dead on arrival. We ended up inheriting the house. Our mother had died of breast cancer ten years before, so Gil and I were the last two of the Morton bloodline. My brother was a good guy, though somewhat of a waste case, constantly smoking weed and dropping acid. He had a tendency to travel out far across the country without notice, moving around to see nature or go to music festivals. That is when he had the money. And since he worked as a freelance writer, he was often broke. He really wanted to get at the money that dad had left us. He wanted the money from the house most of all. He told me repeatedly that it would be enough to tide him over until he got a footing in the writing industry that he just needed to make a name for himself and then the money would start rolling in. He had his heart set on it. He would write anything that he could make money off of, from horror stories to romances, short stories to novels, even technical manuals or freelance journalism articles. As we walked to the house together for the first time in months, he repeated this mantra to me again. Just enough to tide me over, Luke. I think you're probably going to burn through the money that dad left you, I said. Why don't you get a real job and just write on the side? He gave me a sideways look. 
Did you see Hunter S. Thompson getting a real job while just writing on the side? He asked. I nodded. Yeah, he was a journalist. I began as we walked into the house, but we both stopped simultaneously when we saw what was on the coffee table. It was all of Dad's possessions that he had when he had died. They were placed neatly in a line. His wallet, his phone, his car, and house key. Some cash, and last of all, a little shed key on a thin leather chain. What do you think is really in that shed? I asked. Gil looked at me, pale and wide-eyed, in the dark living room. I don't know, and I don't know if I want to find out. Gil said, whispering as if he were in church or a funeral home. I put my hand on his shoulder and shook him gently. Of course we need to find out, I said. You and I own the place now. We should go look right now. He breathed in sharply. No, no, don't be an idiot, Gil whispered. It's dark out now. In the morning we can go together. In the morning... You've waited 20 years to find out. I think you can wait a few more hours. But there was something pleading in his voice. Something scared and childlike. It reminded me of when I was a scared little boy at bedtime. Telling my dad that there were monsters in the closet. And he would go open up the door and I would tell him to stop. That they were going to hurt him if he opened it. But he would open the door and there would be no monsters in there. Surely it was the same here. Gil would see, and for that matter, so would I. There were no monsters in there. This all happened from yesterday to this morning. We ended up leaving that place together a few hours ago, bloodied and bruised and injured, after being trapped inside all night. The day before it started, Gil stayed up late downstairs watching TV and smoking a joint. He made himself a nightcap from my father's liquor cabinet, pouring some Jack Daniels and ice in a cup with some Coke and sipping it slowly. I stayed with him for a while, talking. We talked about the good times that we had with Dad, about going hiking with him in the Green Mountains, or traveling to New York City with him to see the museums. I thought about how much I really missed him, and a knot formed in my throat. I quickly blinked my eyes to try to get the tears to go away. Eventually, I went to sleep in the guest bedroom. Gil stayed downstairs, sleeping on the couch in front of the TV. I heard the faint hum of it from upstairs, the canned laughter of whatever comedy he was watching, the acerbic tone of the lead characters as they delivered one witty joke after another. I fell asleep to it the voices blending into a sarcastic, hissing whisper in my ear. And then I was floating, bodiless, looking down on a dark cornfield with ravens staring at me. The voice was bodiless too, sounding like it came from right behind me, but when I turned, nothing was there. In the halls of our fathers, everyone is dead. It whispered mockingly, You'll be dead soon too if you get curious. Some doors are locked for a reason. Some doors should stay locked. I woke up suddenly. Something was wrong. I heard Gil yelling. I fumbled around in the dark for the lamp, groggily checking the time. 4.17 a.m. 
Flinging the comforters off, I ran downstairs. Gil was sleeping on the couch as still as a corpse and quiet as one too. I looked around, confused. Where was the screaming coming from? I followed the noise out back. I looked at the shed and my blood ran cold as I heard another long cry come from inside. I walked across the dirt yard of my slippers, not wanting to get any closer but walking forwards nonetheless. Part of me wondered if I was still dreaming, but the chill air against my sweaty face felt real enough. The screaming from the shed was not in words. It was a long, drawn-out, painful shriek. It was the shriek of a mother who just lost her only child in a war zone, or the yell of somebody doused with gasoline and burned alive, but amplified into an ear-splitting cacophony. I had the key in my pocket. I reached for it with shaking hands, pulling it out, slowly approaching the shed, and then somebody grabbed my shoulder. I jumped, whirling around with clenched fists, ready to fight. And then I saw that it was Gil. Now you nearly gave me a heart attack, I said through clenched teeth. What is wrong with you? He put his finger to his lips, the universal sign for silence. And then he leaned close to my ear and whispered, If you open that shed now, we will both die. He said quietly and calmly, as if he were just stating the weather for tomorrow. Put the key away and go back to bed. You never want to open it in the dark. Never. What do you know about it? I whispered back, shooting glances over my shoulder at the shed. The screaming still came, though slower now, maybe one heart-rending shriek every minute or so. Part of me was glad there were no neighbors for half a mile in each direction, and that made me want to laugh. There was probably some horrific animal in there that would rip me apart if I got the chance and I was thinking about noise complaints. Tomorrow, Gil repeated, gently taking my arm and leading me back into the house. I sat next to him in the living room, pouring myself a gin and tonic, sipping it slowly as these screams from behind the house mixed with the canned laughter of the TV show, wondering what kind of man my father really was. I woke on the couch, an empty glass falling out of my hand onto the cushion. Light streamed in through the windows. Gil was nowhere to be found. I looked back and forth and then I heard the sizzling of food from the kitchen. Stumbling in, I saw that he had prepared a massive breakfast of bacon sausage, corned beef hash, eggs benedict with hollandaise sauce, Texas toast, orange juice, and coffee. He was smoking a joint with the windows opened occasionally sending a grim look out the back of the house towards the shed. I sat down pouring myself some coffee and grabbing milk and sugar to mix in. What was all this food for? I asked. He kept staring out the window. Hey, he turned suddenly, his face looking pale and drawn. What? Well, I said, who's all the food for? I repeated. He looked around, smiling. Just for us, why not? I figure that you'll need the energy today and so will I, he said cryptically. He sat down across from me, pouring himself coffee and orange juice and grabbing a plate full of meat, toast and eggs. I did the same, giving him occasional glances. 
What did Dad tell you? I asked, pouring maple syrup on my sausages and bacon and chugging an entire cup of coffee in one long swallow. It burned my throat, but the rising heat and caffeine made me feel instantly better and more awake. Gil sighed heavily. Not much to tell you the truth, he said. He was really drunk one time when you were away at college a couple of months ago. He was drinking more and more before he died, like something was weighing on him, something that he wanted to forget. Well, anyway, I was sitting down here with him, watching those documentaries that he used to love, and during a commercial, he just started talking about the shed. Now, boy, he said to me, I know you probably have a few questions for me. I probably should have told you and your brother about it a long time ago, but it's something that I don't like to talk about. Out of sight, out of mind, I guess. I think talking about it tends to wake it up. Wake what up? I said. Dad was quiet for a long time just staring at me, and then he leaned in close and whispered something strange. The stairs, he said. They're not normal, son. Sometimes they go down below the shed to a, well, I guess it's just an empty subfloor. Just a plain swept dirt basement below the shed. But I never built any such subfloor. And it wasn't here when I bought the house. And it isn't on the plans either. If that was it, then who would care? I mean, a free storage place, people would be happy, right? I nodded, grinning back at Dad. He seemed to have a glimmer of his old self for a second, happy and free. But then his face darkened again. But lots of times, boy, those stairs did not lead to a subfloor. One time they led down to a white room covered in blood, with bright fluorescent lights flickering all over the walls and ceiling. And there was a little girl down there dancing among the blood, jumping and twirling in her little blue dress, little ballerina slippers on her feet, and all the skin on her face peeled off. She was just a bloody, grinning skull. And when she saw me on the spiral steps in the corner, she stopped dancing and just stared. The lights began to turn off and everything went dark and I ran, my boy. I ran faster than I ever have run in my life. I felt little hands grabbing at me as I made my way up the last stair and slammed that shed door behind me. I locked it as something fought to get out, something that felt far stronger than any child. And that was just one time. It's worse at night. That's when the real dangerous ones come out. I don't know how the stairs work, son, and I don't think that I ever really want to. Maybe if you're lucky, you'll never have to deal with them. Maybe I'll find a way to destroy them before I die. I maybe. Gil stopped speaking, deep in thought and remembrance. I took another sip of juice and ate some bacon before responding. So you're telling me that Dad went crazy before he died? I asked. Gil shook his head quickly. He wasn't crazy, Luke, he said simply. At least I don't think he was. If he was, the stairs probably made him that way. Do you really think that you were just hearing a fox or something caught in the shed last night? Those screams, they sounded human. We both know that was something unnatural, but I wouldn't worry if I were you. 
If you need proof, we'll have plenty after today, assuming that you still want to go into the shed. And after we finished eating, with no fanfare or delay, we did. I grabbed the key and Gil and I went out side by side, scared but not showing it, ready to finally see for ourselves the mystery that had haunted our family for decades. We walked through the hard-packed dirt yard, looking down the grassy field behind the house to the rolling hills that stretched as far as the eye could see. They began to grow blue, pale, and fuzzy near the horizon. It was a beautiful place to live, and hard to imagine something so evil might be right in the middle of it. The shed loomed up ahead of us, boards tightly hammered together and freshly painted a dark red color. The shingles on the small roof all looked relatively new, and the door was expensive and sturdy. I stood in front of the door listening for the sounds of any movement, but there was nothing. I fumbled in my pocket for the key, pulling it out, looking at Gil who stood close by my side, and then I shoved it in the lock and I opened the door. The shed was dark as if a curtain of shadow fell across the open door. I stuck my head in, feeling around the side for a light switch, and that was when something grabbed my hand. I screamed, ready to pull my hand out and run, and then I felt the light switch on the wall. I flicked it on quickly. There was no one in there. Shaking, I turned to Gil. Something grabbed me, I whispered. He nodded, unsurprised, and then we walked into the shed together. The walls inside were all covered with plates of sheet metal. Every square inch of the shed was reinforced with steel, including the roof which had a flat pane of metal going straight across the shed, welded to the floor that covered the walls. Only the floor was unprotected. It was just a plain dirt floor with a hole in the center. Looking closer at the protective structure of the shed, I saw deep claw and gouge marks raking the metal surface even those on the bottom of the ceiling eight feet above the floor. Something had clearly been in here and wanted very badly to get out. I inched closer to the hole in the floor, which took up most of the floor of the shed. It was at least ten feet wide. Looking down, I saw spiraling steps, descending in a clockwise fashion as far down as the light extended. I found a small rock on the ground outside, came back in and dropped it down the center of the stairway. I listened for it to hit the bottom, counting these seconds on my watch. After about 30 seconds, I realized that it wasn't going to. Maybe it was too far down to hear when the stone connected. I looked over at Gil. He was standing as near to the door as he could get, looking like he would rather be anywhere else in the world. I gave him high marks for courage, though. There was something wrong in here and I could feel it. Outside, it was warm and a fresh breeze blew the smell of flowers and pines through the yard. But in here, it was cold and oppressive. A freezing chill seemed to come from the hole in the floor, spiraling up with the stairs and running over my body, sending a feeling like ice running up and down my back. Do you want to go first or should I? I said, gesturing to the hole. Gil stared at me as if I had gone mad, his eyes widening. Why should either of us go? He said, raising his hand and using them to gesticulate wildly, as he often did when he was upset. 
I shrugged. This is our property now, I said. We need to at least know what's on it, don't you think? But there was another reason too. It was sheer curiosity and a desire to prove to myself that there was nothing supernatural going on here. No monster in the closet. Just the overactive imagination of an old man. Gil sighed. Fine, he said. I'll go. Go grab two flashlights and dad's gun. Maybe some extra batteries. Some extra mags too. Better safe than sorry after all. We both went inside the house together, leaving the shed door wide open, and that was when, I believe, something got out. And then the killings in town began. We descended the stairs slowly. There was stone, slick in some places. There was no guardrail or any protective barrier which made my heart beat a little faster. I wanted something to hold on to. If I took a tumble on these stairs, I might keep falling forever. We heard strange sounds from below periodically, but when we shone our lights down there, we couldn't see anything. Echoes rose around us, sounding at one point like kids playing a game of hide-and-seek, at another like the howling of a wolf. Strange squeaks and clicks would also arise intermittently from these shafts below us, and then stop as quickly as they had started. The noises got louder as we descended dozens of stories and then hundreds. It seemed like the stairs would just keep on going forever, until we hit the mantle of the earth and got burned up. And then a door appeared, painted a chipped blue with a fading daisy on the center of it. I looked at Gil and then swung it open. Beyond it, a hallway with fluorescent lights extended as far as the eye could see. Countless rooms went off to the left and right. The lights flickered on and off, sending portions of the hallway into darkness. The floor was falling apart in many places, with strange molds and fungi growing out of the wood. White and black molds battled for space, forming huge colonies that were bigger than my shoe. I walked forward, putting my weight gingerly on the floorboard. It creaked slightly and felt wet under my shoe, yet it held my weight. Come on, I said to Gil, who followed closely behind. As soon as we had walked a few steps down the hall, the door slammed shut by itself behind us. I jumped and turned, pulling out the gun reflexively. Gil put a hand on my shoulder, pushing the gun back down. It's okay, he said. I was breathing hard and my heart hammering in my chest. Maybe that was why I didn't hear the counting at first. But as we walked down the decayed hallway, the lights turning on and off above us with every step. I realized that someone was counting, and it had been going on for a while. It sounded like the voice of a little girl. 40, 39, 38, she said, counting off the seconds. I heard giggling from the rooms around us, but I couldn't see anyone. We kept walking forward, but that counting was getting on my nerves. Not least because I couldn't for the life of me tell where it was coming from. We checked the rooms to the left and the right. There were broken tables, old office equipment, and chairs in nearly all of them. Some of them had fish tanks, but instead of fish, they had plumes of multicolored molds growing over the top of them. Or in one case, a dead and dried out turtle. One, ready or not, here I come. The girl's voice screamed gleefully, 
and that was when all the lights went out at once. We quickly fumbled for our flashlights, turning them on at the same time. I had the gun in one hand crisscrossed with the flashlight in the other, a trick that I had seen used in cop shows. Gil had a 10-inch bowie knife in one hand, which he had just removed from the massive scabbard that he had it in around his leg. In the other hand, he held the flashlight, which he frantically shone back and forth and up and down. Jeez, calm down with that thing, I said. You're going to make me dizzy. Something's coming, Gil whispered, a note of dread in his voice. Don't you hear it? I stopped, listening hard. Indeed, I heard footsteps nearing, small suppressed giggles, the swishing of a dress. My flashlight illuminated a pale face, a little boy sneaking a peek out of the nearest room. He was filthy, covered in black soot with torn clothing, and what looked like blood caked into his hair. He looked up at us quickly and then withdrew into the room. For the first time, I felt genuinely scared. Now we could be certain that we were being watched. Hey, I whispered, running into the room after him. Gil followed close behind me. The footsteps seemed to be right next to us now, but I looked around not seeing anyone. And then a blur of movement passed by as a little girl ran over to the little boy, where he was curled in the corner under a broken folding table, crying and shaking with terror. Found you! She said, I shone my light directly at her back, seeing a pale blue dress, but I couldn't see her face. Get away from that kid, I yelled. She ignored me, bending down quickly and before I knew what had happened, she had ripped the boy's throat out with her teeth. She turned to look at us and I saw that her face had been cut off, and now only a grinning skull remained. It was covered in a thin sheen of red and two tiny white pinpoints of light seemed to glow inside the empty sockets of her eyes. With her teeth full of flesh and gristle and fresh rivulets of blood running down her skeletal mouth, she continued to cry, Found you! Found you! Without hesitation, I shot her in the shoulder. She fell back a half-step, turning to look at me with that skeletal grin, and then spun around and continued eating the boy. He was still alive, choking on his own fluid, his huge eyes moving over to me as he died, as if accusing me of being the cause of all of this. The sound of his last breaths were the only sounds now. I shot her again, but she wouldn't go down. A blossom of red began to spread outwards on her back where I had hit her, but she showed no pain. Gil grabbed my shoulder tightly. We need to get out of here, he said through gritted teeth. I nodded. We ran back to the door that we had come in through, but it was locked tight. The lights were still off. I told Gil to take a step back and then tried shooting at the lock. The bullet ricocheted crazily if I had shot a reinforced army tank rather than a plain wooden doorway. Next, we tried kicking it open, but it was as if it was fused to the wall. I turned to look at him and the truth passed between us in a glimpse. To get out, we would have to go further in, where there were likely even worse things waiting for us. The darkness around us was oppressive, cloying in total. 
Anywhere that we weren't pointing our flashlights would turn into a solid wall of black, impenetrable shadows. But we could hear something. As we walked further down the hallway, we heard soft footsteps and giggling. Sometimes it sounded like it came from directly behind us. At other times, it would come from the rooms all around us. The endless rooms that split off the hallway on both sides. We found some strange things in those rooms as we walked slowly. The gun raised in my hand and the bowie knife raised in my brother's. There were corpses in some of the rooms. Many had partially mummified in the dry, chilly air down here. Others were clearly fresher. One woman was hanging from the rafters with a note pinned to her chest. I looked back at Gil when we had reached this part of the hall. We had stayed out of the room since the incident with the little boy, but some deep innate curiosity needed to know what was on this note. Gil nodded at me and we both walked forward side by side, scanning every corner of the room and looking behind smashed out fish tanks and torn sofas covered in black mold for any signs that we weren't alone in here. Once we were both satisfied, we returned to the young woman hanging in the center of the room. She had someone climbed up to the ceiling, opened a panel, and found a sturdy enough beam or rafter to tie the rope to. Yet there was no ladder or anything remotely tall enough to reach the ceiling nearby. It was somewhat of a mystery. I explained this to Gil, who looked somewhat confused and alarmed. He clearly hadn't realized it until I pointed it out to him. I turned back to the woman and picking off the note which had been stuck into the front of her blouse with a huge wooden splinter. Gil kept a lookout while I read, shining his light back and forth in a circle around the room, holding his ridiculously huge knife in the other hand, like some sort of medieval swordsman. I saw with increasing horror that the note appeared to have been written in the woman's own blood. Looking at her body, I saw a deep slash on her left arm, one that had clotted days ago. I looked back down at the desperate message this dying woman had left for us. My name is Michaela Mansfield. I came in here by accident through the sewers underneath the town of Kaplan. My two friends and I went exploring and got separated after a girl in our group twisted her ankle. I went forward alone to find help while my other friends stayed behind with the injured girl. After perhaps a day of being lost, my flashlight had started to die and I thought that I was going to die with it. But then I saw fluorescent lights up ahead. They were flickering and looked like they might sputter out in a moment, but it was the only hope that I had. I followed the lights and found myself in this hallway. When I tried to turn around and go back, the entrance to the sewers had disappeared. It was just a hallway that seemed to extend forever. The one that has haunted me for weeks now. Please, if, if you find this note, tell my parents what happened to me. Take my golden locket and return it to my mother and father as proof. I hope that you have better luck getting out of here than I did. Goodbye, and may God forgive me for what I'm about to do. I looked up at Gil with one eyebrow raised. I saw that he had been reading the note over my shoulder rather than keeping a lookout. I sighed, deciding not to say anything. We can't take the locket. I said. Gil shook his head. We have to take the locket, he said. 
They're going to think that we had something to do with this girl's death if we just show up randomly with a piece of her jewelry. Actually, I think I remember when this girl and her friends went missing. It was on the news. Her parents were pleading for anybody with information to come forward. I think the cops were acting on the suspicion that it was a murder or a kidnapping or something. But they probably just went exploring without telling anyone, and they never came back. We'll wipe it down and send it anonymously through the mail with a note explaining what happened, he said. I sighed, giving up. He was right, it was the right thing to do. But I'm sure many innocent men have gone to prison over trying to do the right thing. I pointed to the note. This doesn't help us at all, I said. He shrugged. And maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. It doesn't really help us formulate a plan, but it does give us information. For example, now we know that this place probably connects to a lot more places than just the shed. We might be able to get through dozens or hundreds of exits. If it connects to a random sewer over in Kaplan, then it could connect to places all over the county. True, I said. But what if it connects to some alien world? Or a black hole? What if it connects to some point in the void between galaxies and we get sucked out to our deaths? He simply shrugged again, seeming apathetic to these possibilities. While in that case, he said smugly, a half-smile forming on his lips, our deaths would probably be a lot quicker than they would at the hands of these creatures down here. And then he started laughing. It sounded eerie in this dark and forlorn place, where everything smelled like yeast and the floors were all wet substrates, growing strange jungles of alien molds. He reached forward and took the golden locket off of the woman's neck, placing it carefully into his pocket. We started walking out of the room together. Also, I said, the note seems to imply that the entrances are temporary. She couldn't find her way back out after she got in here. What if they're all like that? What if they're like, I don't know, lobster traps or Venus flytraps or something? They draw people in here and then once they're inside... I stopped speaking as soon as I realized that I heard someone following us. I heard running footsteps, a high-pitched giggling it started and then it was cut off. We both stood there in the darkness, our flashlights pointing forward. And then the voice of that demonic little girl had started up, high-pitched and somewhat inhuman sounding. Her words all had a strange hoarseness to them. An uncanny valley sound as if she were only imitating human emotions and human speech. Adam's it, but he won't play, she said, her voice bouncing off the walls, the rapid beat of the footsteps approaching nearer and nearer. He says that his throat hurts, so I guess I'm it. You better run. God dang it, Gil said, swinging his giant knife around from side to side as if he were going to bat a mosquito with it. His light flashed and wavered as he tried to keep a watch on all sides, but I knew that she was coming from behind us. I could feel it. I kept my light shining down there, the gun raised, trying to emanate a calm that I didn't feel. And then I saw a flash of blue, zigzagging crazily past a chair leg, and the snapped remains of a folding table. Tiny legs pumping at a superhuman speed. She looked like little more than an approaching blur. Listen to me very carefully, I said, trying to keep my gun pointed on her. 
We need to cut off her head. What? Gil said. Why? Last time, bullets didn't work on. I began, but then she was on us, no more than a few feet away, jumping over the discarded junk that intermittently appeared on the sides of the hallway. And then I found myself knocked over by a tremendous force that took the air right out of me. I still had my hands crossed in front of me, one holding the gun and the other the flashlight. The skeletal face of the creature was mere inches away from my own, biting and gnashing madly. I could see small muscles in the back of her mouth working furiously. She was pushing down on my arms with all of her strength, which was far more than such a small body seemed to suggest. The gun was pressed closely to the front of her chest. I was about to pull the trigger when I felt the weight start to lift off me. I saw Gil behind her wrapping his arm around her neck and pulling her back. She still gnashed and bit in a mad frenzy small droplets of blood and saliva dripping off her mouth and into my face. She kicked her body back and forth like an enraged snake, freeing her neck from Gil's grasp. He went to grab her and her skeletal face opened up wide, the jaw hanging halfway down her neck. With the speed of a cat snatching a mouse, she leapt forward, snapping her jaw around some of the fingers on Gil's left hand. I saw his index and middle finger disappear into her mouth and he began to scream in agony. I was scrambling back to my feet by this point. I ran at the girl using all of my body weight to push her. She went tumbling on the floor, her mouth flying open as she landed hard on the wood. Two fingers flew out, rolling across the floor and disappearing into a dome of black mold. I was sweating heavily now. Drops of perspiration rolling down my forehead and stinging my eyes. I tried to wipe them away, thinking of what to do. My mind screamed at me to shoot, to empty my entire magazine into this little monster. But I knew in my heart that it would just be wasting bullets. Deep down I knew what I had told Gil earlier was true. We had to cut off her head. Just like in the old myths of vampires or demons... I had a deep, instinctual feeling that fire or decapitation would be the only way to deal with her. And as for fire, we had no flamethrowers. Gil, I said. Get ready. He was holding his spurting hand tightly against his chest, still grasping the bowie knife in his right. His face was alarmingly pale and white, and I wondered if he might not just pass out right here and doom the both of us but he hadn't dropped the knife even while fighting the writhing monster, even while getting his fingers bitten off. He's stronger than he looks, I reassured myself. A sense of calm and clarity overcame me then, and I saw what I needed to do. The demonic girl was getting up, growling and spitting and laughing. I ran over and stomped on her back, putting my full weight on her body to drive her back down. And then I took the pistol and I shot her through the back of the kneecaps, one bullet for each. She wailed as dark red poured out of her small legs, turning her head almost all the way back to try and bite me. Her hands were changing, the small fingers lengthening and darkening into sharp black claws, and I knew that our time was running out. Now, I yelled, and Gil ran forward using his right hand to swing the bowie knife. I watched it fall in a descending arc as if in slow motion, watched it approach the spitting skeletal face, 
Dad looked at us with black eyes and unfathomable hatred. It went clean through and was so sharp that for a split second, the head stayed there, the face blank, looking like it was still attached to the body. And then it tumbled forward, dark red, spurting out of the neck and staining the white and gold molds underneath with its crimson hue. Gil fell back against the wall, breathing fast. He dropped the bowie knife on the floor. I saw that his flashlight was still on, head rolled against an ancient wheelchair that was probably new back in the 1960s. I stopped and grabbed it, shoving it in my pant belt so it would give me more light to work with. Gil still had his hand clasped to his chest. Slowly, I put my hands forward and grabbed his injured hand by the wrist. He inhaled deeply, gritting his teeth and closing his eyes. We're going to need to wrap it up in something, I said. He nodded. I took off my shirt and started ripping long slices from the bottom, then wrapping them around his hand tightly in, in an attempt to slow the bleeding. When I got to the fingers, he flinched and seemed to waver on his feet. I reached a hand out in case he was about to fall over, but he managed to steady himself. All done, I told him as I put my shirt back on, which was missing the bottom third portion now and looked rather absurd, almost as if I was wearing a woman's crop top. It feels like my hand's on fire, Gil said in a hoarse whisper. We're going to need water too. I was feeling the start of dehydration pangs myself. That girl, Michaela, her note said that she was stuck in here for weeks. That must mean that there's water. Assuming that her counting was correct, seeing as there's no sun or sky to go by. If there was no water, she would have died after a few days, especially being on the move, I said. I was hoping that we would find some food as well, but it wasn't really life or death. I knew that we could potentially go weeks without food and still live even though it would feel extremely unpleasant and weaken us physically. I sighed, shining my flashlight at Gil. You ready to keep going? I asked, and then the lights had started turning back on. Most of them were still either out or flickering on and off rapidly, but either of them were lit to see down the hall. Oh, thank God, Gil said. At least now we're not walking through this junkyard in the dark. Up ahead, I saw something new as well. It looked like the hallway forked off. I pointed at it and Gil's eyes widened. Finally, after walking for endless miles, this place does something. As we neared it, I saw that there was even a sign. One pointed left, reading, to Veriden. The other pointed right, reading, to Rusty Township. Hmm, I said. I've never heard of either of those places. They're definitely not in the county. Gil's dark brown eyes looked past me, into the room behind us, and they widened. I reached for the pistol, turning quickly, but I found nothing but a mostly empty and half-lit room. Against the corner was a vending machine and a soda machine. Oh, thank God, I said, running forward and reaching in my pocket for some money. And then I remembered that I left my wallet at home. After all, I thought that we were just going into the shed. Gil strode right past me. Don't be an idiot, he said, taking the butt of his bowie knife and smashing the glass of the vending machine. You don't need money. Who's going to call the cops? The walking undead and demons here. 
He pulled out brands that I had never heard of. Overholster's beef jerky, chocolate bars with caramel and peanuts called Eisenhart's, took saltwater taffy and Riza's fruit snacks. The other vending machine was no less alien, as I smashed it with the butt of the gun and found Springy's lemon lime soda, Canabran Cola and St. Christoph's ginger ale among others. Not one of the brands was recognizable from our world. We tore into the food with a ravenous hunger, chugging bottle after bottle of soda. It all tasted similar enough to what we had expected, though some of it was rather strange. The ginger ale, for example, had small silver shavings on the bottom of each bottle, their trademark gimmick, and Gil swallowed them and nearly ended up choking. I smacked his back hard laughing. I don't think you're supposed to drink those, I said sarcastically. We were filling up our pockets when the drumming had started from down the hall. It was so sudden and loud in the otherwise perfect silence that I jumped nearly a foot, spinning around and taking out the gun. It was becoming second nature to me by this point, and so much adrenaline was constantly pounding through my body that I was as jumpy as a cat. The drumming grew louder and fast. It reminded me of the drums some ancient Aztecs must have used when cutting out the hearts of prisoners of war. It had a deep and primal beat to it that would be useful for stirring people up during acts of savagery and violence. It was coming from the direction labeled Rusty Township. I could barely hear myself think over the intensity of the drum beats. I tried to motion to Gil that I would go first since I had the gun but that he should stay right behind me. But he looked like he was just smiling and nodding and likely hadn't understood a bit of what I was trying to communicate. Sighing, I started forward down the corridor. I peeked my head around the next corner, where a doorway opened up into a huge gymnasium. The ceiling towered over me. I saw dirty, disheveled people standing in a semicircle around a metal coffin that was stood upon one end against the back wall. Blood was pouring out at the bottom, following a river that stretched across the gymnasium and curved off to the right corner. The people surrounding the metal coffin were laughing, clapping their hands and cheering, stomping their feet in time with the beads. I saw scurvy blossoms and festering sores across their faces and exposed skin. And for the first time since we had gotten lost down here, there were windows around the edge of this massive chamber, windows showing the outside world. I ran over, looking out. I saw a city on fire, the buildings burning and sending up thick, black plumes of smoke. It reminded me of what Berlin at the end of World War II must have looked like. Fronts of houses had collapsed inwards. The streets were cracked and filled with debris and I saw bodies hanging from lampposts up and down the street. Many of them were so old that the ropes were starting to fray. Some of the bodies had started to mummify with thin, papery skin clinging tightly to desiccated muscles and hanging jaws. Around the corners of houses and alleyways, I caught glimpses of strange shapes, crouching half-animal, half-human beings who carried a sledgehammers and long knives, robed figures who seemed to float over the devastated and cracked ground, and children with red skin, who I saw crawling up walls on all fours like geckos. 
The drums stopped as suddenly as they had started. My ears were still ringing. I turned back to the semicircle of sickly dirty people. They had stopped their clapping and dancing and cheering and now just stood like statues, staring at Gil and me with flat and dead eyes. You shouldn't stare into the township, the thin woman with filthy black hair had said. A strange way crept into her words, one that I had never heard before. Strange things live in there and they come out when the drums stop. She stepped forward, whispering, We keep them away by giving a sacrifice every time the drumbeats come. The blood satisfies the ones in the city and the others in the halls. We will all have our turn in the coffin, sure enough. Another member of their group stepped forward and opened up the metal coffin. I saw a long, thin spike sliding out of a body and then a pale form fell out, landing on the dirty floor with a wet smacking sound. The smell of coppery blood in the air was now overwhelming. Gil and I both gasped in unison as we saw this form on the floor was a person. A young woman, in fact, almost totally drained of blood. Dozens of marks were sliced into her, and an expression of pain and horror was frozen onto her now-gone face, her wide, staring eyes looking up at the ceiling. You killed her, Gil said aghast, still clutching his hand close to his body in an unconscious gesture of his anxiety and fear. Why? Why would you put somebody from your own group in an Iron Maiden? Iron Maiden? The woman with the black hair in front responded. Aye, that's as good as a name for it as any. We call her the Steel Mistress in my world. In my time and the Steel Mistress sees a lot of use. She gestured out the window, her face emotionless. You see my world after all. It's a place that always reeks of death and more often than not, reeks of fire too. What part of the United States is this? Gil asked, gesturing out the window. The woman frowned. I do not know these United States, she said, shrugging. What country are you from? He asked. Why, Victoriate, of course. But Victoriate only has three states. Rusty Township was the capital until it was attacked by the Black Hand Allegiance soldiers. We're all refugees from Rusty here, she said sadly. This isn't getting us anywhere, I said to Gil under my breath. He nodded, sighing. Can you tell us how to get back to the stone steps? Uh, big circular stone steps that go around and around. Gil asked the woman in one last attempt to get a sensical answer out of her. She nodded her grimy face. Aye, in the center of the undergraves, she said, pointing past the Iron Maiden and the dead body on the ground. I realized that there was a sign up on the ceiling in front of the next corridor, one pointing left and saying, to Rusty Township Center, and one pointing right and saying, to the undergraves. The sign was so covered in dust and specks of black mold that it was no wonder that I hadn't seen it. Do you have any maps of this place? I asked the woman and her friends. They all shook their heads. There are no maps of the undergraves, but the stairs be at the center. You just take a right here and follow the path straight. Ignore all forks to the right or left. Just keep following it straight. We were walking away fast now, trying to leave these lunatics behind. 
but you're mad to go there now after the drums just stopped. Her voice was fading rapidly as Gil and I ran forward. Those people were nuts, Gil said, killing each other just because they think the blood keeps away demons. Brother, I said through heavy breaths. If you and I lived down here for a few months, we would be just as crazy as those people. As we jogged into the undergraves, I realized the walls were turning into something organic and pulsating, like being inside a huge intestine. Massive forks to the left and right appeared every few hundred feet. From them, dark shapes appeared stepping forward. They moved shakily, blurry as they stepped to the right or left randomly. Their mouths opened wide and seeming to be filled with blackness. Their eyes looked like pure black sockets, and the rest of their body was no more than a shaky silhouette of shadows. When the first few stepped forward, I, I didn't know what to do. I gingerly raised the gun, deciding better safe than sorry. They were coming at me fast, jerking randomly, their skin seeming to writhe and shiver as I stared at it. As they got within ten feet of me, a deep burning heat started to fill my body, as if I were standing in front of an oven. I started shooting one bullet for each of their center mass and they dissipated into smoke. I watched the black stuff curl back into the red, pulsating room that they had just come out of. The sense of heat dissipated instantly, but my skin still felt warm and strange. We were running through the undergraves now. Miles of slick red covering the floors, strange tissues growing across the rooms in tumor-like sacks covering the fluorescent lights, which even here flickered endlessly across the ceiling. In many of the rooms I saw people strung upside down from the ceiling, their ribs exposed. Strange hunched figures sliced the meat into strips, preparing it and drying it. One of them looked at me with its pig-like face its bovine legs walking across the sticky floor, slowly and uncertainly at first, and then running for me. I was running low on ammunition by this point. Gil came from behind and disemboweled the creature as it raised its butcher knife. It had been so focused on me that it hadn't noticed him jogging up with his stained bowie knife in one hand. I can't run much longer, Gil said, panting as I nodded warily. Neither could I. My hand is still on fire too. I really should have gotten medical attention like 12 hours ago. Part of me wondered if the stairs were even here, or if we had been lied to. Sent into the worst part of this strange hall to become sacrifices to these abominations. We had, after all, put our lives in the hands of a band of lunatics. But at this point, we had nowhere else to go but forwards. The undergraves were as close to the worst place that you could imagine. In fact, we only survived because of a twist of fate and a sad, lonely mutant. There were creatures everywhere and most of them were horrible things to behold. More of the strange pigmen with long knives had come out of these surrounding rooms. They always had human bodies hung up and butchered, drying meat stretched out on hooks all around the room. If Gil and I had no problem with eating people, we could eat for years in this place. I had shot at least a dozen of the pigmen, trying to save my ammo by using only a single headshot where possible, and Gil had decapitated probably a dozen more. Some of them we just ran away from, 
especially if there were large groups, but it felt like we were going further into the fire rather than escaping from it. There were endless windows now, endless windows along the sides of the rooms and they showed a world in flames. I saw people with missing limbs huddled around barrel fires in bombed out cities. Husks of tanks scattered around the street and bodies hanging from the lampposts. I began to see where the meat to feed all these creatures was coming from. Gil and I had found a room with a pyramid of clothes, shoes and glasses that stretched to the top. Brother, Gil said, this place makes me sick. I sighed as sitting down on a pile of clothes and opening some beef jerky and a candy bar. I checked my ammo supplies and realized that I was down to my last magazine. I can't wait to get out of here, I said. The smell of so many bodies must have seeped into my clothes by now. But then I heard a soft rustling from behind me. I turned my body, pulling up the gun and pointing it. A strange man stood there with his hands up. He reminded me of pictures that I had seen of the elephant man. Tumors and scarred, rounded growths stuck out all over his head. His forehead sloped radically to the left, and one of his eyes was slanted. The folds of skin around it hanging loosely above and beneath it. He had on an old military uniform, one I assumed he had scrounged from some dead body. My finger tightened on the trigger for a moment, and then I relaxed. He had no visible weapons. Please, he said. Can I get a chocolate bar? I laughed, breaking the tension and handing him an Eisenhardt. It was apparently a brand that he knew and loved, for he ripped it open and ate it, smiling and bowing. I gave him a soda too. His face brightened like a child's. Thank you, thank you. Nice man, very nice. What's your name, friend? Gil said slowly still holding his bowie knife tightly. I still had my finger on the trigger as well, but I had a feeling that we wouldn't need weapons for this guy. Frankie, he said. His smile was so wide now that it showed all three of his remaining teeth. I'm a friend. Sure, I said. Why not? Frankie, my name is Luke and this is Gil. We're good guys. We're not from here, in fact. We're trying to get out. Do you know how to get out of here? Frankie paused for a long moment, as if that many sentences at once had overloaded his brain's processing power. His face took on a slack and vacant look, and then he brightened and nodded. You can go to Rusty Township right out there. He said excitedly, pointing out the window to where a woman's body was being picked apart by angry, squawking birds. I shook my head, smiling. Well, that seems like a real nice place, I said. I'm actually looking for another wearer. We came down here on these circular stone stairs. Some um, really nice people told us that those stairs could be found over here in the undergraves. If you follow that strange hallway covered in muscle and skin straight. Those real nice people had also been cheering and clapping as they shoved one another in an Iron Maiden and let the blood soak into the floors. I remembered. Frankie laughed, a genuine happy sound that felt strange in this place. No, friend, he said, wiping a tear from his eye. If you go straight into the undergraves, you come to the pit of the skull. There is thousands of angry demons in there. They would eat you. 
He continued laughing. I think your other friends played a joke on you. I swore, my face darkening. Gil looked like he was about to be sick. Never trust a woman with scurvy blossoms on her face, Gil muttered. Should have known. So we would have died if we had followed their directions, I asked. Frankie nodded. I wanted to go back to where I had seen them and use the last of my magazine on those sick weirdos, but I tried to focus on my breathing and calm down. Jesus, man, it's a good thing that we found you, Gil said, reaching into his pocket with his good hand. You want another chocolate bar? From what we learned from Frankie, who tended to stare off into space and drift off topic but seemed otherwise all there, the people who sacrificed each other to the Iron Maidener, as they called it the Steel Mistress, were all refugees from Rusty Township. They were also, apparently, a cannibal cult members. Once they had drained the blood from whoever picked the burnt match or played it, tic-tac-toe the worst or whatever other insane way they chose, they would throw the body into the opening of the undergraves. The demons would come out after the drums and drag the body away to eat it. And the cult members also tended to send wayward travelers like ourselves down into the undergraves to get eaten as well. Apparently they thought these precautions kept them safe from the majority of the horrors of the undergraves. In tack, they had survived this long, so maybe they were right. The urge to go back and murder the whole lot of them came strongly to me, and I could see that Gil felt the same way, but getting home was far more important. Frankie had lived here for years, foraging from the occasional vending machine and stealing supplies from the cult members and demons. I assume this means that he ate human meat for a lot of his calories, but I wasn't going to point it out. He just didn't seem polite at this point. He seemed like a hard guy to upset though. I mean, after all the things that he had seen, it was hard to imagine him turning out otherwise. But it also meant that he knew the halls and intersections like the back of his hand. When I explained to him the staircase that we had come through, his eyes lit up. Oh, I know it, he said, but it is nowhere near the undergraves. It changes, but it's always found at either the beginning of the endless hall. That's where we came in, I think, Gil said. It seemed endless enough. Or it hides between the meeting place of Veridin and Rusty Township. So we were right next to it, I asked angrily. Now I really wanted to kill those lunatic cult members. Frankie nodded, drawing back slightly, his eyes widening at my anger. Well, let's go. Gil said, looking more tired than I had ever seen him, holding the bandaged remains of his hand against his chest and wincing. I'm tired, but I would like to get out of here before those nutjobs find us and throw us in an Iron Maiden. Or maybe some pig monster slices me up and makes jerky for my muscles. Frankie shook his head violently. No, 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 Frankie said. If we go back the way you came, you will die. The drum stopped. What are the drums? I asked. He shrugged. They come from the ceilings and walls. He said, describing a small black box that sounded like a speaker. Maybe they were originally set up before the collapse of Rusty Township. I know not, friend. I don't give a crap about the drums, Gil said. What happens if we just walk back the way that we came? The cleaner comes after the drums, Frankie said in a whisper. The cleaner's mean. He is tall, metal man, as tall as the ceilings, and he's strong. 
I've seen him snap the pigment in half. So, is there another way around the main hall? I asked. Frankie took a long moment to think and then he nodded. It's dangerous too, he said. The tunnel underneath leads back, but it has a strange things. This was all that he would say about it. Well, okay, Frankie, lead the way, Gil said, throwing the man a bag of beef jerky and a soda. We were getting very low on food and drinks by this point, but as I saw it, it wouldn't matter. Either we would get out and we would have plenty of food and drinks back home or we wouldn't. And we wouldn't need any food or drink if that was the case. An old riddle popped into my head as I considered this. What is greater than God, worse than the devil? The dead eat it always, but if the living eat it, then they die. Nothing. Frankie got up quickly, eating the entire bag of beef jerky in a single swallow, which I didn't even know was possible until I saw him do it. His cheeks were stuffed like a chipmunk and he chewed slowly and thoughtfully, with his few remaining teeth savoring the taste of the meat. And then he went back behind a pile of clothes, felt around on the floor, and with a cry of triumph, pulled out a weapon. It was just a baseball bat with rusty bent nails sticking out of it like the broken quills of a porcupine. But it was better than nothing. Let's go, friends, Frankie said. I would do anything to help my new friends. You should go home where you belong. We all need a home. He trailed off sadly. I looked around to where he lived and my heart broke for him. He stuck his huge head out of the door looking up and down the main hallway of the undergraves. Slick muscular growths covered the walls, the ceiling, and the floor. The red stuff seemed to contract and expand, as if it were undergoing paralysis. With a look back, he nodded and went forward. We followed along, placing all of our trust in the strange being who called us his friends. The hatchway to the tunnel was in an auxiliary room a few hundred feet down the hall. I walked in front next to Frankie, seeing as I had a gun and I needed to be able to shoot in an instant without worrying about them being in the way. The hatchway was rusted and ancient looking. It had a wheel that had to be turned to open it, and it took the strength of all three of us to get it moving. It squealed loudly, flakes of rust splintering off it. I cursed under my breath, hoping that it wouldn't draw attention. As soon as it was open, we went down the ladder one by one underneath the main hall. The tunnel was cramped and dark. Red emergency lights placed every hundred feet or so gave us some illumination, but not much. Everything had a bloody glow to it, and there were auxiliary shafts running off the main one, some with no lights at all. But in the darkness, I could have sworn that I saw movement as if a slightly less black silhouette were moving towards us through the darkness. We got through as fast as we could. Another ladder led up and we took it, but that strange sensation of being followed by dark shapes hadn't left me. The ladder opened into a room that I didn't recognize at first. The hatchway panel opened up into a place filled with detritus, broken furniture and mold spread out all over the floor. But when we got into the main hallway, I felt like cheering. Further down, I saw the sign for the intersection of Rusty Township and Veriden. And crossing in front of it, I saw the cult members who had tried to give us directions to the ninth circle of below, or whatever that place truly was. Stop right there! I screamed, raising the gun. 
A dark-haired woman with these scurvy blossoms on her face jumped so high I thought that she might fall over. The other cult members turned and looked at me, surprised and afraid. Didn't expect to see me again now, did ya? Thought that I would be killed by demons and maybe you could take my body and eat it. Or just give it as a sacrifice to those abominations. Sir, I I'm sorry, the woman said, but we must get out of here. The machine... Stay right there or I'll blow your head off, I said, walking forwards quickly and shoving the gun in her face. Your brains will be dripping off the wall. You're not going anywhere. And then I heard it. A mechanical whine started down the hallway, coming closer. The cleaner. Frankie whispered in a tone that reminded me of a scared voice of a child. Oh God, the cleaner. I kept the gun raised, but prodded the woman forwards towards the intersection of the three hallways, looking down towards the rusty township side, where the noises were coming from. What I saw set my heart racing. It was a robot at least ten feet tall, its silvery skin shone in the flickering fluorescent lights. It had two eyes that shone white LED light, a slit of a mouth and long arms and legs that looked like they had been made of steel beams. Freeze, it said in an emotionless voice. Please show identification. The cult members screamed and started to scatter like cockroaches. The robot instantly responded upon seeing them move, taking one of its long arms and running forward, whipping it across the hall in a blur. I heard bones crack and saw bodies break as they were pushed into the walls and in one case out of the window. I heard shrieking for a few seconds as the hapless man fell to his death. You've killed us all, the dark-haired woman told me accusingly. She tried to run away from me as I backpedaled away from the insane robot, but it grabbed her, twisting off her neck with a loud crack. Blood poured out of her head as the robot threw it across the ground, rolling it like a bowling ball. You are in violation of executive order number 82, the robot said. Show identification or lethal force will be used. It was running at me now and I saw it approaching as if in slow motion. I knew that I was dead. And then Frankie came running out, swinging his baseball bat as hard as he could into the robot's back. The nails stuck into the metal. I saw his large muscles bulging as he tried to pull it out. But before he could, the robot turned and hit him with a balled up metal hand. Frankie's skull collapsed inwards as he fell, crumpling into a heap in the corner. No! I screamed, running forwards. I looked at the bright eyes of the robot and suddenly, an idea came to me. It was the only one that I had. I started emptying the magazine into the robot's face, and within seconds its white eyes had burst. My ears were ringing from so many gunshots in such a small space. Sparks and wires shot out, and the robot began to well. The smell of gunpowder and burning metal filled the area. Visual centers offline. Visual centers offline. This is a catastrophic error. Contact Victoria at Arms Corporation and report the location and type of this error. A large reward is offered. Please call 1-600-333. I stopped listening. The robot had begun to move randomly, swinging its arms and legs in wide circles as its alarm blared. I saw a crush a few more cult members to death. 
It smashed into the walls, breaking the sheetrock and leaving huge dents and tolls everywhere. I ran over to Frankie. He was still alive, though he was fading rapidly. His eyes were shutting. Did I help my friends? He said slowly and sadly. I nodded, a single tear falling from my eye. You saved us. I'm so sorry. He nodded and then closed his eyes and let out a long breath. The stairs are down the Veriden Hall before the train to Naraka, he said. Go home, friend. Go home. Blood pooled around his broken head as his lips began to turn blue and his breath stopped. Gil pulled me up, whispering in my ear, I think we're being followed. We need to go now. And so we did. We began running down the hallway. I looked back, seeing the bodies of the members and the kamikaze writhings of the robot as he smashed into random rooms and went further down the hallway towards a rusty township. But there was something there, something dark and humanoid. I squinted, but it faded into the shadows. There, Gil yelled, pointing to a door that I recognized. It was a chipped blue door with a daisy painted on the front. My euphoria and elation was so high at seeing it that I grabbed a gill and I hugged him. Frankie did it, I said. He got us out of here. And then we heard the shriek from behind us. I turned to look, but it was all dark shadows now behind us. The flickering lights had died. We flung open the door running through it. It opened on the same circular stone steps that we had used to get down here. They were still slick and still unless and still had no railing, but my adrenaline was so high that I had just started sprinting. My fear of heights had nothing on my fear of what was down here with us. But whatever it was following us, it was getting closer. I could hear it gaining, hear it shrieking. I checked my gun as I ran and was not surprised to see that I had no ammo left. All we had was that dang bowie knife. I was exhausted, but we kept running, on the verge of passing out. Eventually, the temperature started to go up and the air felt less oppressive and thick. I could see the entrance to the shed a few more revolutions up around the circular stones. Using the last of our energy, we sprinted to the end of the stairs. We ran out into the shed, clearing the last of these slick and stone steps. The door was locked, just like when we had left it. There seemed to be new gouges in the plate metal shielding the interior of the shed. Deep claw marks and lines running every which way, but especially over the shielding for the door. Gil fumbled in his pockets for the key. Hurry up, I said through gritted teeth. It's coming. I can't, Gil said reaching into every pocket, but he kept coming up empty-handed. He had lost the key and now we were going to die. And then he reached into the little pocket built into the main pocket of his front right jeans and I heard a tiny jingle. He brought up the leather strap with the shed key on it. With shaking hands, he shoved it in the lock and began turning. I heard deep, thudding footsteps only a few feet behind us now, and a demonic voice began to shriek. My ears rang in a high-pitched squealing, but I kept my hand in the now useless gun, looking back and forth from the door to the last stop. Just as Gil had pushed open the door, I saw it. It had empty black sockets where its eyes should have been. Its skin looked like the tight, desiccated skin of a mummy, 
and it seemed to tremble and writhe as its body moved. Its mouth opened nearly to the center of its chest, just a huge black void that sent out deafening screams constantly, seemingly without needing to breathe. We slammed the door shut. I put all my body weight against it as Gil put the key into the lock and began to turn. There was a tremendous shaking as the abomination slammed into the door, and then Gil clicked the lock into place and pulled the key out. I slid to the floor, my heart beating so fast that I couldn't feel the individual beats anymore. After resting a while, we went back into the house. Gil flipped on the TV where we saw breaking news flashing across the screen on our local channel. The death of an entire family in Lancaster County today continues to remain unsolved. Authorities state the neighbor found the bodies of Larry Matheson, age 46, his wife Linda Matheson, age 41, and their children Jonathan Matheson, age 11, Jordan Matheson, age 7, and Abigail Matheson, age 3. Authorities state that the amount of violence at the scene was unbelievable and that the bodies of the victims were almost unrecognizable. In addition, authorities told our reporters that the heads of the children were removed and that they still found no sign of them. Police believe the killer or killers likely took the heads with them. Anyone with any leads is asked to call. I shut off the TV. Gil looked up at me and the shrieking in the shed had started up again and I heard scratching and clawing coming from behind the house. Something got out, I said. Something got out of the shed. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.